Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. He was doing lending deals on businesses. He was doing lending deals against property. He was doing all sorts of things. And I saw him probably a couple of years after he'd set up his business. And I remember when I first met him, I thought, oh, my God, you, you've hit the mother load. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Amazon best-selling author, chartered accountant and founder of the Freedom Warrior program, Selena Kilkani. It's time to break out your balance sheets as she guides us through the pros and cons of lending but don't get too comfortable as you'll find out she comes prepared with a safety warning. previous episodes, Kilkani has shared her thoughts on just about every lending-related topic under the sun, except one. She puts her being the bank hat back on, drawing from prior discussions about private lending to discuss the pros and cons of lending, including the difference between short-term and long-term lending criteria. Well, I think the, the concept of lending as an asset class is generally not one that people are all that familiar with. You know, we're used to um, equity investing, meaning we own the asset and we're trying to build um, equity basically or, or, you know, create growth so that the purchase price is lower than the value of the asset. So lending as an asset class is kind of new territory for the mainstream investor. But as the world evolves and, you know, different opportunities open up, it's certainly becoming something on the fringes that more people are interested in and getting their head around, which is holding debt as an asset on your balance sheet, which is a bit of a jumble of words, but yeah, it's um, it's looking at lending as and being the bank, I call it being the bank, as um, a different way of, of participating in real estate. Yeah, I probably need to unpack a little bit about you know, looking at the balance sheet and all that for people who might not understand that, that's sort of more the accounting terms, isn't it? Um, how, how does that work in the sense if you're a property investor with a portfolio? Well, you know, if you think about a balance sheet, a balance sheet is just a list of what are all your assets and what are all your debts. And um, generally speaking, what a traditional property investor likes to see is a list of, you know, real estate addresses on their, you know, assets side and maybe a related loan on the debt side. But what we're talking about with lending deals is you become the bank, meaning you become the lender. Someone owes you money and you just collect that income stream either in the form of interest or, um, you know, capital and interest. Um, And so what 
some clever dudes out there have gone and done is created a market where as an investor you get to participate at the as the bank and you know we've talked about this a little in the past but being the bank gives you the highest level of control with the lowest level of effort and if you think about say for example you know the big four banks the sort of involvement that they have when you go out and purchase an investment property you know they don't they don't care if the place needs renoing they don't care if you know, the tap falls off. They don't care if you have tenant problems. It's just pay me no matter what because I'm the bank. And if for any reason you have headaches which cause you to miss payments, they say, well, thank you very much. I'll just take that asset. And so if done properly, the benefits and protection that you can get in lending deals, especially when you're, you know, in first position are significant. So um, I think you know, the, the pivot in thinking is really switching from thinking that you have to own the asset to make money to I don't really care if I own it. I'm happy for someone else to have their name on the deed, but I'm there if something goes wrong and I, I'm going to take control. I love that. <laughs> the reason why I say that is because I've been involved in numerous deals very much similar to what you're talking about. And I can relate from personal experience because ultimately when you lend your money out you want to get your return back plus your interest because otherwise one it's opportunity cost and two it's also a headache if you don't get your money back but you know when you control an asset like that and you have very much just no interest in actually what the actual asset does except that it's going to make money you know as long as the, the deal stacks up and it makes money then ultimately all i want is just to get a return back on that and this is why you pointed out such a very important point the actual structure and setting up the agreements between both parties is so crucial because that is your protection that is where you will ensure that you get your money back just like the bank you know they probably send out every time you do a, a borrowing of the bank to borrow say for example of a property there's like 200 300 page document I mean, who has time to read through that except for the legal team? So that's why we flick it over to them and we pay them the fee to do that. That's that's what you know they work hard for. But ultimately, they're there to ensure that they protect their money that they're going to lend to you, whether it be you know half a million dollars, three, ten, etc., million dollars. They want to make sure that they get the return back. And if they don't, what are the consequences? And how will they actually take a legal action to be able to get that asset back down and sell it down to be able to recoup their return? And that's the beauty of being that because it's a very passive type of strategy because once it's done it's a lot of heavy work like you know a lot of front loaded at the end sorry at the beginning to get this done but once you're actually in that transaction for them it's like a 30-year loan so it's just continuously receiving monthly repayments but for us obviously with short-term loans that we're doing and lending out to potential developers and so forth it could be six months 12 months we want to make sure that that period of time where the development goes successful we get our money back at the end and this is why i think it was good to raise this as a topic to talk about because there are pros and there are cons between doing these and as you can understand short-term loans yes you can get funds back within a short period of time and if it's successful if it's um not then yeah things can go pear-shaped and you go through the litigation route but also at the same time what do you do after that these are all really interesting questions and i'll, I'll tell you a quick story um I knew I've known a few people, but there's there's one guy in particular that I I've known for about um, twelve years. He ran a pizza place. He ran a video store. He ran 
a bunch of different small businesses and worked really hard, worked seven days a week and amassed quite a reasonable, you know, capital balance and decided to go out on his own and set up a lending business. Now, he was doing lending deals, lots of different permutations. He was buying invoices off builders, meaning he gave the builder the money and then the builder just repaid it when they got paid. He was doing lending deals on businesses. He was doing lending deals against property. He was doing all sorts of things. And I saw him probably a couple of years after he'd set up his business. And I remember when I first met him, I thought, oh, my God, you've hit the mother load. Like this is, you know, a long time ago. You must be laughing all the way to the bank. And he said, Selena, it's lucrative, but it has probably shaved five to ten good years off my life. Um, And... You know, he learnt through, you know, baptism of fire really to understand the mechanics of how lending deals work and how to kind of, you know, do good due diligence on deals and were the deals underwritten properly, all those things. But I think he definitely said the shine around lending deals had come off for him. And so I think it's really important to kind of pre-qualify everything that we're about to say, which is there, you know, Lending is not something you can just go out and start doing as a um, an inexperienced investor. The people I invest with in the lending space have been doing it for decades, if not longer, and they're veterans and they understand the ins and outs of, of how it works. So I think the, the point you made before is, yes, the, the first thing is the, the concept of lending as an asset class is an incredibly creative space. Like, you know, we're broadly talking about short-term and long-term, but there's so many permutations even within each of those in terms of how deals get structured. So, um, you know, I don't think we've got enough time in, you know, maybe five to ten podcasts to go through all of those permutations. And even then, particularly in other cultures, not, not so much Australia, but in other cultures where the way to transact real estate is is more variable and creative. The way that lending deals can come into play just blows your mind because we just go, wow, we just we can't do that over here. But you can certainly do that in in other countries. So I just wanted to kind of set that up as a bit of a preframe to um, you know it's a bit like a stunt. Go don't go out and do this at home without <laughs> proper training. Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> Don't try this at home, kids. That's right. That's right. So if we were to talk about um, pros of what I think lending deals are about, I think if they're secured by real property, then there can be a perception of, of much lower risk. And that definitely does de-risk a deal for you. If you know that if things go pear-shaped, that you've got real estate to kind of swoop in and take, then that de-risks it massively. Um I should mention like, you know, there's a huge difference between being in first position as all of the major lenders are and being in second position, meaning the other person who's in first gets paid first and then you get paid second. So, but, you know, having that security either in first or second position is is really probably your biggest um, insurance policy, if you like. Um, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Tyrone. I do. Uh, the good thing as well too, and this is what we've been working very closely with the developers to work closely is we don't necessarily only just take the or get ourselves registered on the mortgage as well. 
which is good that there's first and second mortgage on this. But we also do get personal security guarantee as well. So they call it a PPSR. Um, and that means that we would get them to sign a deed to say if anything happens, we will go after all your personal assets as well too, which is also another way to de-risk it. And I love that component because initially I thought mm, most of the guarantees are irrelevant nowadays, even though banks don't even look at it as being much at all. Because I remember when I grew up, they said, I'll go to your mom and dad and ask them for a personal guarantee. You'll be able to borrow this against them so that way you know you can get a loan and whatnot. Nowadays, I don't think it's been as effective but when it comes to these kind of things, especially with um, knowing what kind of assets that they have because we ask for a list of assets from the people that we're borrowing from or they're borrowing from us, you realize, wow, they've got you know, a substantial amount of assets to bear to go against to, to, that's under their name, particularly their personal place of residence, which could be you know, the home that they're currently living in. And if they sign that away, they're definitely not going to ensure that they risk that to lose everything. So that gives us another certainty that they are committed to ensuring that the loan is paid off because no one wants to lose their you know, family home, which is sad because we don't want them to do that. But if that does happen, that's something else to, as a way to de-risk. So, you know, those are the key components I personally look for, you know, insuring for any deal. But we also do, um, yeah, just check through the assets. <laughs> the interesting thing is we don't only just ask for one asset. Because if there's not enough in one asset, we go for the other second asset. So usually they've got investment properties as well. And we also register a mortgage against those as well. That's that's the other things I look out for in the deals that we do. And that's all fantastic and should be um, definitely part of the, the due diligence process. Um, the, the term that, that I've heard used extensively to describe the sort of lending that you do is, is known as hard money lending. So it's where people come in. They're happy to come in as a, uh, a lender with a client that for some reason doesn't fit the bank criteria, but they're a good bet. And in order for them to get lending, they have to pay a premium rate with pretty rigid sort of terms is, is kind of the, the way to describe it. But yeah, yeah look, um, I think the other pros of, of this kind of uh, deal is there's less moving parts. Um, it's it's a really good way to learn about property if you're going into a new market. Uh, if you're working with someone who knows what they're doing, they're fairly simple to execute. Um, from your perspective as an investor, the time leverage is phenomenal. So you don't have to find the deal. You don't have to work the deal. You do not have to collect payments. You just get paid. And even with... Um, hard money lending, there's lots of different permutations. So I know in the States, for example, any uh, hard money deals that I've been involved in, I might get paid monthly. I know the ones that you do, you get paid at the end and we have a different market. But, you know, for the time that I put into the deal, this is what I get. The, the difference is phenomenal. I mean, it is one of the most passive uh, strategies that you can be involved in. Um, you don't have to worry about tenants and toilets, as you've heard me say before. And what I also really like about um, that kind of, you know, short-term lending is they're less susceptible to volatility in the market um, because you're, you're investing and you're in and out over a shorter period. So I, I see those as the, the high-level pros. I mean, did you want to add anything to that? I think, yeah, you've covered most of them actually on that side of things for the pros of these type of lendings. And and once again, it is the, the thing is that, 
you know, if, if you don't have to go and find the deals and the deals all stack up with the right diligence backing behind it, it is a very, very lucrative type of strategy because it's really like an, you can say an armchair type of approach where it's just passive. You, you put your money in and at the end of the term or during every month, depending on which permutation you go down, you pretty much just get your return. And it sounds very sexy and all, but um, there's also, you know, the, with anything that sounds too good to be true, there's also risks and I guess potential cons that you got to consider as well. I think that's probably leads really well into our next part, which is talking about the opposite side, what could potentially happen if things don't go well. Yeah, look, absolutely. And um, I mean, some of those pros I just want to add as well probably relate to their similar pros for long-term or short-term lending deals. Um, it's, it's all the same stuff. On the risks side, in terms of um, risks and management, um, everything, and I mean everything, hinges on the quality of the dealmaker and their experience. Coming up after the break, Kilkarni shares her top questions to ask when completing your due diligence. So, the risk from a, an investor perspective is, do you actually know what questions to ask to ensure that you are getting uh, you know, someone who's experienced and has the right qualifications? What you as a second position lender need to feel most comfortable about? I think about other risks to consider. I, I think there's things like um, you need to understand if you don't have the first line of control. She lets us in on a secret from her past investment. Can I be frank and say that I've done that, you know, in my deep dark past? Um, you know, I, I let the greed of a deal overshadow, and I, I asked my lawyer in principle, "Does this sound right?" And that's next. I'm Taran Shum, and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey property investor, is your cash or equity currently earning you 1 to 2% per annum sitting in the bank? What if I said to you that you can do better? To find out more, simply register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest to get a high return with low risk on their money for 6 months. Register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. Kilkarni scrutinizes every deal before signing on the dotted line, asking as many questions as she needs to get her answers. A practice she says should be used for any strategy, but especially in the alternative space. I look at it from the viewpoint of I might be in relationship with this person for the rest of my life if they're any good. You know, I'm, I'm really all about what is their experience and what is the quality of the deals that they do, what's their track record. So. The risk from a, an investor perspective is, do you actually know what questions to ask to ensure that you are getting uh, you know, someone who's experienced and has the right qualifications? Um, did you want to add anything to that, Tyrone? Yeah, 100% on that one. I have to totally agree and that, that's the reason why it's so important with any deal maker that you work with that when you check through the due diligence that they supply everything that they've done in terms of checking through 
the developer or the borrower that they're working with, you know, you've got to make sure that they've actually done a credit check on them, they've checked the CV, what their past track record is, all those things come into play because if for whatever reason you've discovered that they've been bankrupt or defaulted on something like this and, you know, they've got a track record of not delivering things back on time, these things will come and bite, you know, down the track because usually history repeats itself but not saying every time it does. But these things are the, the components that you want to check out for any particular person. Um, not necessarily you want to do a psychometric test on them and do all that kind of stuff, but uh, you do want to actually just get some kind of track record to see. And typically for us, we don't usually work with anyone who's one or two deals, first you know, first deal that they've done or the second deal. We want to be able to ensure that they've been in the, I guess, development industry or that particular property sector for at least minimum five years, they've got a good proven track record of a few deals, you know, minimum at least five deals that they've done that have been successful. And they've also shown a return that they can actually return the funds back to their investors if they've borrowed funds from them. And, you know, you, you will start to see those things when you actually do due diligence. We get all their bank records, we get all the assets liabilities, we get the accountant to sign off on all these things. And, you know, that's only one component, but there are so many other things that we do as part of our due diligence process. And it's so, so important to ensure those things are covered off because ultimately that's where it comes down to trust. You know, besides looking at these documents, you want to trust that they can actually do their job correctly and pay the loan back. I think that's all exactly right. I think the only thing I would add to that is that I think it's really a, a useful distinction that people understand the difference between a deal maker and a deal sponsor. So everything that you've just talked about there is really exactly right. The deal sponsor is the, the person who owns the deal that brings it to the table. The deal maker, from my perspective, and it's just a maybe it's just semantics, but it's the person putting the deal together. So say, for example, like in my world, I have lots of people who can bring opportunities to me and I think of them as the deal maker and the people that bring the deals to them they're the deal sponsors. So there's kind of like two layers of due diligence, but where I put most of my energy is on the deal maker rather than, you know, if I know the deal maker and I know how they work and they can describe to me exactly what you have, which is here's all the due diligence I do on the deal sponsor, that is awesome. But the other side is me doing due diligence on them as a deal maker, because are they ethically sound? You know, you know all those things that I just mentioned before, and so that's like there's there's two components and two levels to the due diligence. So, I think the experience and quality is both about the deal sponsor and the deal maker. I, I think that's absolutely right, and ultimately it comes down to building that relationship because. If you're going to go into this type of lending type of arrangement, you're not going to be going in there, you know, fly in, fly out overnight kind of thing. It, it's a long-term investment and it takes a lot of time to establish one of these relationships with, say, for example, these deal sponsors, but also it takes a great deal of time to establish the relationship between a deal maker. And, you know, you won't know that within the first meeting or so, you won't know that in the first week. It actually takes a bit of time. You've got to probably do a small deal with them just to sort of get a feel of what the process is like. And that's typical, you know, for what we do. And usually after about six to 12 months, once you're comfortable the first few, you know, deal that's gone through and you've got a return back on investment, that's when you go, okay, yep, you know, I've established a strong relationship with them and you've done your due diligence as well at that point in time. Then you go, okay, I think I can work with this person particularly long term or whatever it is. So it, it's key to know that this is not a, 
a short-term process or not something that will happen quickly. It will take a bit of time and just like anything that you do with property, it's all about relationships. You build that relationship over time and you build that trust as well too. And out of that, you know, you can either have a fruition of a deal or things just go south, unfortunately. But, you know, let's just hope the first is usually the, the path that you take. Think about other risks to consider, right? I think there's things like um, you need to understand if you don't have the first line of control. So as I mentioned earlier, if you are in a second position as a lender, you want to be really, really comfortable with two things. Number one, what the overall leverage on a deal looks like. And obviously, if you're in second position, you'd be really striving for a super low um, loan-to-value ratio. If you're with someone who's borrowing up to the, you know, the hilt, there's huge risks in that. And if something goes wrong, then there is a chance that, say, for example, in a fire sale, you don't get paid. So if you are not in first position, and even if you're in first position, I think it's really important to remind yourself that if you... Um, if you don't have enough of an equity cushion, you could get into to some hot water. And that's the thing. You want to make sure that when you are reviewing these type of deals, that there is going to be enough one equity if something does go south at the at the end of the day, that it's going to be able to cover all the litigation costs because that's a key, key component. You know, that alone can erode the whole profit in the deal because legal fees are not cheap. Um, you know, if you have to go to even to the highest, which is the Supreme Court, you need to allow for at least minimum one hundred to one hundred fifty thousand just for those kind of legal fees, and that's the start. So, you know, we always make sure when we look at these type of deals that there is enough for that kind of buffer. Not only that, you just want to also be assured that if you do have to go to a fire sale, what is the actual bare minimum the market will be able to accept? Because you know, you're not going to be asked for the top price when you actually have to go sell the property quickly. You want to actually look at what's the realistic maybe say knock up an extra 5% off the valuation and calculate based on that to say, okay, this is what's going to happen. Because ultimately, if it's a first tier bank, one, they don't want to you know, get into this because it's a PR nightmare for them. But two, if they do have to go and sell, they want to actually put it to the market as quick as possible and recoup their funds as quickly as possible as well. And usually that you know, is, is a, a pretty lengthy process you know it takes a while but you know being second position this is where we work very closely with the first tier lender to have these terms in place and we have what we call a deed of priority usually to to ensure that they cover off on all those aspects because if things do go south we want to be able to still have some form of sale control as a second mortgage as well yeah really really great detail there um i think yeah proper documentation i think is the sort of the back end of all of that and I think the challenge for someone who's fairly new to this is that they, you know, they're going to struggle to understand what's in the documentation if they're not careful. I mean, in Australia, particularly, we're famous for using legal language and jargon to make things super confusing, which I hate. And, you know, people go cross-eyed and have to reread things 10 times to, to understand them. But, you know, if you're concerned about the fact that you're about to sign on the dotted line and you don't fully understand it, it's probably no different to when you sign a mortgage document. When you go and get a loan for a mortgage, the banks like to obviously cover their butts and so they have like just pages and pages and pages of disclosures. And, you know, banks have to, from a legal point of view, tell you to go and get legal advice to make sure you understand what you're signing. So when it comes to lending deals as an investment class, I would say, why would you do otherwise? Like, so making sure that you get someone 
who is confident about that stuff to just look there, look over it and make sure there's no red flags. Um, I think if you skip that step, and one of the things I, I see often is people blindly sign agreements and contracts because they've got dollar signs in their eyes. And, you know, can I be frank and say that I've done that, you know, in my deep, dark past? Um, you know, I, I let the greed of a deal overshadow. And I, I asked my lawyer in principle, does this sound right? Um, but I didn't dot my I's and I didn't cross my T's and it, it, it cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that one around make sure you understand proper documentation is, is huge. And I totally agree with Selena on that one too as well. It's just make sure that you do have someone who's available that you can actually talk to, that you can trust, that is a legal representative as well too because it's important, you know. Like we we have a legal team that we work with, that we trust and so forth and thank God for them because they're the ones who have done such a great job to be able to put these legal documentations together on behalf because obviously we're pro for our investors so we've got to make sure the documentations protect us not the borrower but ultimately at the end of the day you've got to make sure that you have a second pair of eyes from another legal representation to you know come back and say look is this something that you're sound and comfortable with as long as you understand the legalities behind it and you understand what you're going into then you know that should give you a rest assurance that that works but yeah i I think that's that's really powerful to be able to talk about these and one thing I, i wanted to also sort of delve into talking about is really the we, we had a, a touch point about um yield drag which is basically if we invest into these kind of short-term deals typically the ones that i've been working with are usually between six to 12 months typically about six month mark what happens after that you know once you've come out of the deal will you be able to jump into another deal straight away and sometimes that doesn't always you know happen or time exactly that you like and i think that's one thing that it'd be good to sort of talk from your perspective as well selena that once you finish a deal after say six months, what happens after that? And when you look at the overall perspective, if you're looking for sort of residual income or passive income coming on a regular basis, like 12 months, 24 months, what are some of the, I guess, cons you can say about doing that? I think one of the things I'd um, I'd say as a pre-qualifier, because obviously my experience is, is more global, is what one of the things I find fascinating in the US market especially, is that if you go to a bank to get a loan, I could, for example, get a loan now at, say, 3% interest rate and get this part fixed for 30 years, right? Fixed for 30 years. So when we talk about lending as an investment class, the first thing that I would say is that the shorter the loan, obviously the more premium the rate of interest that you could earn. And there's obvious reasons for that. Number one, um, you're potentially involved in a transaction that carries more risk. Um, There's going to be turnover of capital and yield drag as as we've talked about. Um, But I think, you know, if you contrast that to a long-term lending deal where let's say you, and and this happens all the time, you find someone who doesn't quite, you know, they're a, a round peg in a square hole with the bank for whatever reason, and that doesn't mean they're risky, they just don't fit the bank's criteria. And there's lots of business owners, especially, that fall into that category. And, you know, so they're, you know, on the on paper, they, they actually might be an okay kind of bet, but they just don't fit the bank criteria. So you might come in as a lender and offer them a 10, 20, 30-year mortgage on their home as a lender. And that's when you really well and truly are being the bank 
but you might have to accept, let's say the, the market rates 3% or 2%, whatever, you might say, well, look, I'll take 6 to 8% locked in, fixed for 30 years. And so what's awesome about that is if you are looking to build annuities, there almost is no um, better leveraged position than being the bank on a 30-year loan and you just have that income locked in for the rest of time, you know, basically. Now, the risks on that sort of long-term lending is could they, when they get on their feet or strengthen their position, go to the bank and, and refinance you out? Yeah, totally. But, you know, that may or may not happen. Um, if it does, it might be five to 10 years down the track, in which case you've kind of collected a fair bit of that. So that's that's still, a, a, you know, bears the risk in terms of yield drag, but it's much lower. On a short-term lending deal where, let's say, for example, it's 12 to 18 months, you might have a premium income. And when that deal is over, you get your capital back. And the, the next challenge is, you know, where am I going to park it next? And if you're not careful, if your money sits around, let's let's uh, compare a simple example, but let's say um, you're getting 12% on that short-term loan versus the 6 to 8% on the long-term one. What can happen if your money sits around for too long is when you start to annualise that year after year, it could be that the much lower rate of return is in fact, on average, higher just because you haven't got that yield drag. So the important thing to distinguish in my mind that the key point between a short-term lending deal and a long-term lending deal is the longer-term lending deal lends itself to that concept of annuity, which is an income stream that just keeps on going versus a short-term lending deal. It's it's like a one-off transaction. So yes, they can be lucrative, but you don't want to necessarily be the investor who only does short-term lending deals. You want to really, if this is an area of interest that you want to expand into, then you want to be, you know, averaging that out so that you minimize that yield drag. I totally agree with you on that side. And it's just so important to keep that in mind because ultimately at the end of the day, you got to determine, you know, how much work do you want to put in to actually move your funds from one deal to another, if it's every six months or every 12 months, or do you want something that you can just kind of sit and forget for a while and that that's typically of like similar to, to buy property when you think about it when you buy property you kind of sit and forget hopefully that your property manager manages that over a period of time for you and with property once you're locked in it's usually a 20 30 year loan so you don't really want to be buying and selling them every six months or 12 months yeah it's exactly right it's kind of like comparing flipping with a long-term buy and hold that's really what it's like yeah, that's spot on. Well, Selena, that's been amazing. Uh, I think we've covered quite a lot of ground in this particular episode. Was there anything else you wanted to add about lending? I think the only other considerations I think that are worth thinking about is, you know, the, the, the main problem or limitation of lending is, uh, you know, you're not really hedging against inflation. So if we were, God forbid, to move into a really high inflationary environment, then lending doesn't necessarily support that. And and the reason is you negotiate to be paid at a certain rate on a certain amount for a certain period of time. So if inflation goes insane, there's nothing you can do about renegotiating those terms. So that's something to bear in mind. And, you know, the other thing is you, you need to, you know, be a, a big girl and boy and, and recognise that 
you know, when you put yourself into these deals, you're locked in. You, you can't suddenly go, oh, actually, I really need that money um, because liquidity can can vary massively. Um, I, I think the advice I would give anyone is if you're thinking about this, do your due diligence. Um, remind yourself that when you are a lender, you, you have the, the highest rate of return. Um, you need to understand the paperwork and you need a team. You can't, you can't be the lone wolf in this model. Thank you to Selena Kilkani, our guest on this special episode of Property Investory. And if you love the show and are ready to get serious about investing your money to get a low risk, high return, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a money partner. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest their money for a short 6 months. To register interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040.